Well, you know, one of the things that I've always thought is that teaching is a difficult task. I was a high school teacher for 16 years, and we teachers liked to think all it took to shape and change a student's mind was a perfect lesson plan or a really well-devised, really thought-through, creative lecture. See, we had this idea that we were all the lead character from Dead Poets Society or some other movie in which this teacher stands up and says a few well-crafted Hollywood words, and before you know it, everybody in the room is transformed. However, as a teacher for 16 years, I learned rather quickly that this is not the case. Honestly, repetition is the way most people learn, but even then, repeating the same thing over and over again doesn't always work. Most lessons that I've taught in my life to my students, they forgot before they walked out the door. Their test scores showed that very clearly. So is there no hope for us? I'm about to teach here in a second. I'm sorry, actually already started, but I'm going to teach here for a second. Is there no hope for us that we can retain and remember any of these things? And the answer is there is hope. And we're going to see today that there is a secret. And of course, our Lord and Savior, the greatest teacher who ever lived, knew this secret. And the secret is using what you learn. Taking what you learn and not just having it be in your brain, but have it be something that you act out. I remembered when I first started teaching, I felt incredibly underprepared. Um, it was, you know, like I said, 16 years ago, and uh, as we were going, we were flying to Disney World, and uh, on the way there, I spent most of my time studying, trying to get myself prepared for when I would walk into that classroom, and I would know the information well enough to teach it. What was interesting was as I was reading through this information, I kept getting amazed and was like, wow, that's awesome. I, I never heard that before. I can't wait to teach this. That's amazing. Who, my teachers let me down. I never heard this before. What the heck? And then when I got home, I went and pulled out some of my old textbooks. And guess what I found in my old textbooks? I had highlighted and dog-eared the same stories, the same exact lessons that I was amazed with just a few years prior because it had gone in and right back out. You know, but what I have found is that the things that I have taught, that I have used and taught to students sometimes five, six, ten times over again, I still remember to this day. I still remember those lessons because I had to drill them in to my students over and over again. And the fact that I used that knowledge means it's stuck with me. Now, why does this happen? Well, this happens because when you use something, you have to actually grab a hold of it and be able to explain it. You have to be able to articulate it in different ways. And honestly, and some of you are teachers here, you know that when you teach something, you understand it probably better than your students do because you've lived it out. You've used it. Now, notice the direction we're going here. We're not saying you use something and it makes it true. We're saying it's true, and then when you use it, it becomes more true. It sticks with you. It's not something that you go, oh, yeah, why did we never talk about that before when we actually did? One of my favorite uh, memes I found on the Internet is, don't say our, your teacher never said that because you were talking when they did. 
That's probably mostly my problem, maybe not your. So how do we make these teachings of Christ become real? How does Jesus make the teachings that he's been doing become real? Well, today we see how he did that. We see this in how Jesus is training him. So last week, Ross talked about the 12 disciples, which have now had their names changed to apostles. Apostle means sent out ones. And they're going to be sent out right here. See, what had happened was Jesus has been training these disciples. He's been teaching them from the very beginning. They were already there. He hadn't called them out to the 12 yet, but they'd been there the whole time. They'd been listening. Their training is ramping up. They went from being in the classroom to now being in the field. And Jesus, the most brilliant teacher, he repeats himself, he shows examples, he then demonstrates it by doing it himself, and then he says, I'm going to send you out for a very short time, and you're going to try to do it on your own. What an incredible teacher we have in Christ. So I'm going to have to warn you, last Sunday, um, we were out of town, and I got to visit a, uh, a Bible teacher extraordinaire uh, for church on Sunday. And we sat and listened to him for about 55 minutes, and he spent the first 35 minutes on his introduction his background. Literally, he spent the whole 35 minutes talking about all of the background, and then after about 35 minutes, he goes, now let's look at our text. And everybody in the room chuckled. I guess he does it all the time. Well, I'm going to do some background information, but I'm not going to do 35 minutes of background information because I'm not going to, I want to get to the text. And he did a great job once he got to the text, but it was pretty phenomenal. So we're going to have to do some background information because in the text that we just read, there were four groups of people that we need to know. We need to know the Jews, or what's called the house of Israel in our passage. We need to know the Gentiles. We need to know the Samaritans. And then we need to know this group called Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're going to do a little bit of background work so that we understand what's being said here. So first, let's do the Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. Oh my. Here we go. The Jews. Who are the Jews? Who are the Israelites? Well, the Israelites are God's chosen people. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. This is what it says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were, in fact, the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So right here what we see is the Israelites were not chosen because they were the biggest, not chosen because they were the smartest, the most fearsome. They were actually chosen because they were the smallest and the weakest. So that that way when God made something of them, the praise didn't go to the Israelites, but it went to God. So God chose the Israelites to show how great he was. And he referenced his promises. The promise is from Genesis chapter 12. And this is the promise to Abraham, chapter 12, verses 1 through through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, that was his name before God changed it, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, God has taken this small group of people, the Israelites, which started with Abraham and went through his family lineage. Now, not all of Abraham's children are a part of Israel, but that path goes. And that path is a group of people that God says, I'm going to teach you who I am so that you can be priests and prophets and missionaries to the rest of the world. One of the coolest things that I saw was that Israel, because of its location, is the place that all conquering armies have to go through to conquer somewhere else. All traders have to go through to get to somewhere else. And so people were exposed to the God of the Israelites every time they came into Israel. And this is what God was doing. God was pressing home who he was so that the Israelites would be a light, would be a shining light, a beacon to the world around them. This is the true God. So that's what the Israelites are. When we're talking about the Israelites, we're talking about people of Jewish heritage that God had promised to be their, him to be their people. Gentile. The word Gentile is actually the Latin of a Hebrew word, goyim, which means nations or peoples. These are non-Jews. So you have your Jews, this little teeny nation, and then you have everybody else, the Gentiles. And these Gentiles could be, you know, it could be Roman, it could be Greek, it could be anything. It's a catch-all term. And then there's a third group called the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans come from the fact that the Jews, because of disobedience, were kicked out of their land and taken away from Israel. Some of them remained, and they they interbred, they, they married into Gentile families. And because of that, they took some of the Jewish culture and some of the Bible and some of the Gentile culture and wed them together and created their own kind of version of what the Bible taught. And so they were considered half-breeds. As a matter of fact, the, the Jews in Jesus' time did not associate with the Samaritans. Remember in John 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman says, How is it that you, a Jew, Want to drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John says, by the way, Jews and, Jews and Samaritans don't have any dealings with each other. They hate each other. So we see there's these three groups. We see the chosen people of Israel. We see everybody else. And then we see the really despised people, the Samaritans, those who are even hands-off, more hands-off than any other group. And now we get to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, these are two cities on the, the coast of the Dead Sea. They were cities that were very opulent, very big. And when Abraham and Lot, his brother, decided where they were going to reside, Lot chose the prettier, nicer cities, and those were Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was there. God looked down on Sodom and Gomorrah and said, they are sinning. They're doing all sorts of abominations, all sorts of things. They're worshiping all sorts of false gods. So he decided he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, though, said, wait, wait, what if there are 50 believers? What if there are 40? And then he works his way down, and God says, I'm going to send my angels, my messengers, into the city, and if there are not that many, we're going to destroy it. So those messengers show up, Lot welcomes them in, the, the people in the city rise up and want to do all sorts of things to them, and God removes Lot and his family and then destroys the city. And this is what it says in Genesis 19. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. To this day, where they think Sodom and Gomorrah is, is absolutely infertile. There's nothing there. 
So why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, he tells us in Ezekiel chapter 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. One translation says, now behold, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. So this is talking about what sins they were doing. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did abominations before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So I put this background out there because we need to know the starting place of what the people listening to these texts would have heard. They would have understood, okay, house of Israel means Jews, Gentiles means non-Jew, Samaritan is the half-breeds, the ones we really despise. And then Sodom and Gomorrah was a city that was judged for multiple reasons, but the main reason that we're seeing tied here is the hospitality part, is the listening to God's messengers part. So now that we've seen the background, let's move into the text. So Jesus is now going to send his disciples out. He's going to give them instructions on how to spread the good news, how to spread the gospel. And what is the gospel at this point? It is the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. Remembering that they were chosen because of God's mercy. They are to be voices of mercy going out. So here's our big idea. Jesus continues to train his disciples in what the gospel is and what it means for them. So this is the big idea of the text, and this week I struggled because the big idea of the text is really furthering our story along, but kind of in that is what it means for us. And really what it means for us is it means that the gospel shapes everything about us, not just our message and the words we say about I'm going to heaven because of this, or here's how you can know Jesus as your Savior, but it also informs how I interact in every aspect of my life. And Jesus is just starting to reveal that to his disciples right here. So the gospel informs all of life. Now Jesus is helping his disciples get it. He's he's pushing it into their lives so that they have to use what he's already taught. Let me show you this. So if you in your Bibles, if you want to flip back to Matthew chapter 5, where we've already been. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to show you this because what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, here's what you're going to go experience. And it's all very familiar because Jesus has already taught that this is what they're going to experience. So look at verse 10. The first thing Jesus says is, you are going to be persecuted. You're going to be resisted. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So the disciples are going to go live this out. In today's passage, we see they're going to get resisted. The next thing we see, verse 14 of chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do my people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Again, this is the go and share. You are going to have to get out and show. You're gonna, your light's going to spread. Remember, we talked about this back when we looked at this passage. If we imagine our world is completely dark, and there's not many places in the United States more dark than where we live now. And when we're all together, it's bright. But when we walk out the door, we take that light with us, and we take it to wherever we go, and we make little pockets of light all over the place. And that's what he's having his disciples do. The 12 have been really bright. They've been right around Christ. He's now pushing them out to make pockets of light elsewhere. Looking forward to verse 16 of chapter 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, I'm going to send you out and you're going to do these miracles. And these miracles aren't going to be, oh, Peter, you're so amazing. Oh, my goodness, look at how great you are, John. No, these, these miracles, these works, these good works are to point to God, the founder, the author of these good works. So again, he's pushing them out and saying, you're going to go out and do this, and all glory is going to go to me. Skip ahead to chapter 6, verse 24. We see this phrase, no one can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right here he says, do not take the coins for your belt. Now this doesn't mean you're making a belt out of those coins, but it means where they would put their money is on their belt. And he's saying, don't take any money. As a matter of fact, don't let them pay you for anything. If they want to take care of your your needs, your food, your shelter, let them do it. But don't take money for this. You're not getting rich off of this. I mean, think about how rich you could get off of that, right? I mean, there's all sorts of snake oil salesmen in the world. But imagine if you were the real deal and you could heal anybody, you would be a very wealthy, very sought-after person. But Jesus has already said, you can't pursue me and you can't pursue wealth. They don't go together. Chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, I'll read just a snippet of it. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Chapter 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? See, Jesus, again, this is, I mean, this is like word for word what we're seeing here. Jesus goes, don't worry about how you're going to survive. I will take care of it. You need to worry about finding the worthy people to tell them about Jesus. Don't worry about how you're going to make it. And right here, he had already said that. The disciples are going, oh, we're actually doing this thing that you told us that we should do, which is trust you with all of it. And then finally, chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. They are having the opportunity to make their foundation be Christ and Christ alone. They have to be pushed out of the classroom into the field so that this becomes real to them. Jesus is saying, imitate me, my disciples. And he's saying the same thing to us. Imitate me, my disciples. I'm going to send you out. There's a parallel passage in chapter 3 of Mark where he says, and he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And we need to understand, this is what we are called to do. Now, this doesn't mean we go on a short-term mission trip later this week. That's not it at all. But this idea that a disciple is someone who's with God, but also is sent out by God, is what makes us disciples, what makes us Christians. He brings them in to feed them. But that's never meant to be the end. He doesn't want us to get theologically obese while everyone outside of our building is starving. Instead, he wants to show us the food, have us taste it and eat it, and then he wants us to go outside of this building and tell them about the feast that's here and tell them about how to join the feast. That's what our purpose is. 
Now, lest you think that this is, we, we come together to church and you get to a certain point and then you go and you never come back. Notice the disciples, they keep coming back. See, this is the picture. We come here on Sundays. We come to our life groups. We get fed. And then we have the ability to go out and share it with others. But we keep coming back because we need more of that food. We have to gather together. We must be together. A church must gather so that we can feed because it's not just me who does the passing out of food. You do this amongst yourselves. You do it through fellowship. You do it through talking around the coffee cart. You do it in here when you catch up with someone you haven't seen. All of that is part of the feeding. And we must have that. And the disciples have been trained. They are going out and they are coming back together. These regular feedings are what we need. So now, as we dig into our text, look at the ways that the apostles are told that they're going to mirror Christ. All the way throughout this, every single thing that he says, this is what you're going to do, it's exactly what Christ has already done. So let's look at verse 5. Jesus is going to extend his mission. These 12 Jesus sent out, that's the 12 from verses 1 through 4, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. This phrase, among the Gentiles, just means don't take the road to the Gentiles. That's the Greek translation. Mainly what this means is stay in the Jewish portion of Galilee. So does this mean Jesus was a racist? Is Jesus saying, no, no, our, our, our gospel, our good news is too good for those Gentiles and definitely too good for those Samaritans? Well, actually, it's absolutely not. Jesus is the opposite of racist in this. Because if we remember where we've been, and some of you were here for it, some of you weren't, we remember where we've been. Jesus has already witnessed to a centurion. He's already gone into Gentile lands. Remember the demoniac who came out of the, of the graves. And in a few short verses, we're going to see he's going to witness to a Samaritan woman and a Samaritan town. So Jesus is not saying, don't talk to those people. We're not going to talk to them. He's saying, our mission right now is to go to these Jewish-only areas first. And why is that? Because God's plan has always been, I'm going to pour myself out in this group so that they're a light for the world. And when that group decides they don't want me, uh, we're just going to go to the world. And we see this throughout the Bible. But ultimately, the way we know Jesus is not racist, Matthew 28. What does it say? Go into all the world, baptizing all. And that's every single nation. And praise be to God, we see that in Revelation at the end. What does it say? Every tongue, tribe, and nation is represented in heaven. How do they get to heaven if they don't hear the good news, which comes from Matthew 28 of telling everyone? So no, Jesus is not racist here. Jesus is just doing a short-term mission for his disciples before they go on the grand mission that comes after his death and resurrection. Verse 6, but rather go, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So here's the first mirroring we see of Jesus. Remember in Matthew 9:36, Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is, is looking at the sheep and he's going, they don't have a shepherd. This kills me. I, they need a shepherd. And his apostles are told to care for those sheep. This lack of a shepherd is, is killing Jesus. It's, it's, dist- it's just so disappointing that they have God's word in front of them, but they can't see the truth. 
The point of Jesus' imagery is not that some sheep have strayed from the fold. It's that Israel's not getting it. It's not just some of Israel that's the problem. It's all of Israel that has a problem. So what does Jesus do? He commissions 12 apostles. You think he just chose that number because it's nice and even? It looks good? He chose that 12 because that's the number of the tribes of Israel. This is a direct claim to the fact he's bringing in a new Israel. The new Israel is like what we see in Romans 9, the Israel of Christ. It's the God's chosen people, and that includes us Gentiles as well. I See, this is how God, work, God works. He takes his time to press himself into Israel so that they know who God is. He's now done the same thing with these 12 apostles. He's pressed himself in there. He says, this is who I am. And then he says, go be a light to those outside. And that's what he wants to do with us as well. He wants to press his gospel down deep into each one of us. And then he wants us to actually live it out by going out and being in the world and being those lights that we're supposed to be. See, even if Israel's response is disappointing, God will not abandon his people. Praise be to God. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you and me, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter is saying, God is not slow. He wants every single person to repent, but know that there is an end that is coming, and it will come when you least expect it. And when it comes, it's over. It's done. So what does this mean for us? This means we are to preach where we are told to preach. That means if you're here today and you, the Lord has said, Oregon is where you are to be, whether it's Gladstone or Westland or Clackamas or Milwaukee or Oak Lodge or Tigard, wherever it is that you are planted, that's your mission field. That's the place you are to preach, to proclaim. For some of you, he might be calling you to go do something somewhere else for a time. For others of you, he might send you out to the other side of the world. He's done that already with many of you. But in every place we go, we are to preach. We who know Christ are to preach wherever Christ has planted us. How are we to do that, though? Well, Jesus tells us. Look at verse 7. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So again, here's another mirror of Christ. We get to mirror Jesus. Jesus came in verse, chapter 4, verse 17, and was proclaiming the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. This is what we are to do. That word proclaim means to preach. Now, to preach does not mean what I'm just doing up here. To preach means to share. It means to to have at the ready, to talk about. Notice the order here, though. He says, you're going to go preach, and you're going to support the preaching by the works that you do. Not that you do these works and then sort of preach along with it, but you're to preach and then use these works. Remember the paralytic in chapter 9. Jesus goes, I've forgiven your sins. But that's just words. Let me prove to you that I've forgiven your sins by healing your body. And that's exactly what the apostles are doing here. They're going to go and they're going to say, Jesus is here. The kingdom of God is here. Put your faith in him. But that's just words. Let me show you the power of the sovereign God by me, having him throw flow power through me and have you healed. Same thing goes for us. Now, we're not going to be going out and healing people. 
but we are going to be going out and bringing good to people. Remember the disciples were to take, do good works for the people? When we go and we serve people, we don't serve it so that they go, man, that guy's pretty awesome. That lady, she's just so kind. No, we go, no, I'm doing this because my Savior is kind to me. My Savior is sovereign, and He cares about your needs. Let me tell you about your greatest need, because that's the one I want to get to. So this, this model, this picture is preach and take care of needs. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. So here's another picture of us mirroring Jesus. Chapters 8 and 9 are full of Jesus doing all sorts of miracles. As a matter of fact, Jesus does every single one of the miracles listed here. He does all of them several times because there's a place where Matthew says, and everybody else that came to him was healed as well. So Jesus is doing doing this over and over. Healing the sick is a global command. It means all sorts of miracles for the sick. Raise the dead is a stunning command because we have conquered death through Christ. Cleanse the lepers. This is a socially significant command. This go to the people that are the outsiders, the ones that are pushed out of society, the pariahs. And then cast out demons is an extraordinary command. It's a spiritual, it's addressing the unseen roots of the problems that we have. So all of these miracles are Christ saying, I care about you physically, but I also care about you spiritually. And that's where we are to be. We are to care for our fellow humans physically, but more importantly, spiritually. And those two go together. We cannot separate those two. It's like the apostles are coming out and saying, these miracles are confirming the message that we are saying. So then we look at the second part of eight. You received without paying, give without pay. Now, I wrote in my notes right off the bat, what does this mean? What what does it mean that we're to, without paying, give without pay? So other translations say, freely you have received, freely give. The New Living says, give as freely as you have received. And, And how this ties to it is that last week when we looked at these 12 disciples, they were not the pick of the litter. They were not the best of the best. As a matter of fact, they were not the best and the brightest. They were the lowest and the dimmest. But he does not stay there. He does not leave them there. He brings them up out of that. And and Jesus, again, chooses these disciples just like how he chose Israel. He didn't choose the best because the best would stand up and go, I got this, God, I'll go do it. Instead, these guys are going, how on earth are we going to have a zealot over here and we're going to have a tax collector over here and we're going to have this guy and that guy and how are we going to, what do those meals look like? What do they talk about? I mean, this is a group that is not prepared to do anything of value, anything of meaning, but yet the Lord uses them. And so this receiving without paying, God, Jesus didn't go to them and say, you're the best, come here, I'm going to use you. He says, you got nothing, I'm going to pour into you. So now Jesus is saying, you're going to do the same thing going out. Their verbal message of proclamation of the nearness of God was buffeted by this display of the fact that they're saying, we didn't earn this, you didn't earn it, let me show you what grace looks like. Let me show you the gospel. This mission that Jesus is sending them on is really multiplying his effectiveness, his activity. Instead of Jesus going around and crowds flocking to him, now the 12 apostles are all standing in for Christ. So there's 13 places that God's work is being done, not just the one. Verse 9, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, 
or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his wages. So another way we mirror Jesus. He went without the world's goods. Remember chapter 8, verse 20. He has nowhere to lay his head. This idea of Jesus going, I'm not here to enjoy the best of the best. I'm here to grab those who are hanging on by dear life and showing them what true life is. Jesus Jesus prohibited his disciples from carrying these provisions. Why? To show them that they could utterly depend on God. This is the same thing that Israel had to deal with when it came to the wilderness. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. After they left Egypt, they had to wander for 40 years because of disobedience. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, he let you hunger, and he fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make known that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, just like the Israelites had to trust God in the wilderness when he said, collect the manna, don't store up extra, I'll give you some tomorrow. Don't worry, I'm going to give you quail. Don't worry, I'm going to make sure there's water. The disciples had to do the same thing. So think about it this way. If, let's say the disciples decided, and it's probably Peter, we'll pick on him because he's the one that gets picked on. Peter decides, you know what, I'm going to go tell people about Jesus, but I'm going to get myself this nice big REI backpack and I'm going to fill it with all sorts of water and snacks and treats. Not only that, but I'm going to have a couple different kinds of money and some things I can trade and I'm going to have this nice big backpack and I'm going to go tell people, don't worry about your eternal destiny. God will provide and he'll provide through Jesus. He'll provide for everything you need and the person standing there would go if God's going to provide for everything I need why is he not providing for you look at how big your backpack is look at how full look how much you planned ahead for this mission that he told you specifically you don't need to plan ahead for see their words do not match their actions I mean, this is, a, this is a crazy arrangement that he has here for the disciples. Again, this is not normative for all mission trips, but the principle behind it is we can trust God. If he tells you to go, he's going to provide. These disciples, they go out with nothing, prepared with nothing, because God's grace says, I will provide for you, which is a picture of their salvation. Then the people that receive them, these disciples show up and they freely give to them this eternal life, this picture of what it means to be God's chosen. They freely give it to them. And they go, wow, you're coming to me. I'm not rich. I don't have the biggest house. I'm not the smartest. But you came to me. Why? Because the salvation is available to all. See, these disciples, they are preaching the gospel, not just with their mouths, but how they approach the people that they're going to. And then in response, the houses, they freely give the disciples grace. They give them extended things, the things they need to survive. So all sides in this this picture are mirroring the salvation, the grace that's available to all. Grace is getting something you do not deserve, and every single person in this gets something they don't deserve. Now, it would be great if I could say every single person in Galilee did this and it was perfect, but Jesus says, no, there's going to be different responses. Look at verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. 
This word worthy is the same word that we saw earlier and deserves in, in chapter, in verse 10. This means someone who responds to the message. Worthiness is not based on niceness of the house. It's not based on the righteousness of the occupants. It's not based on how much they know. It's based solely on do you respond to the kingdom? Do you respond to the fact that the disciples say, Jesus is here, respond? When a person encounters the gospel, the natural response, if they are worthy, if they are one of God's chosen, is to respond by acceptance. Now, what does this look like? How do we make sense of all of this uh, with us? Well, we look at it this way. God says, trust God. Jesus says, trust God and get going. Now, this does not mean that all missionaries for all times were not allowed to take anything with them. We saw Paul did the opposite of this. Paul planned out his trip. He knew where he was going. He had his provisions planned. But instead, it's the principle that if God says to go do it, and he says, don't take anything, then you're set. But even more than that is that we are to proclaim the gospel where we are planted. Verse 12, as you enter the house, greet it. Those who are worthy would welcome the disciples in. This greeting would be shalom, which is the, means peace to you. So they are to say, peace to you. We see this again in verse 13. If the house is unworthy, let your peace come. If your house is worthy, let your peace come on it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. See, these 12 are emissaries for Jesus. So when they step into this house, they're standing in the place of Christ. What an incredible honor we have to stand in the place of Christ in our dark world. We walk out of this building and we are surrounded by those who don't know Christ. Or if they do, it's a caricature of Christ. We get to stand there and be Christ to them. Now, what is this whole, if they're not worthy, leave them? Well, it's kind of like what we saw in Genesis 39 when Joseph went to Potiphar's house. He blessed Potiphar's house by being there. When we are in relationships with non-believers, when we are interacting with non-believers, we actually bring the, the level up. We bless them by being near them. We bless them because we are the light. And this blessing goes on and on. We'll see it as we continue to go through Matthew's gospel, how this blessing changes the hearers. Because here's the thing. When you encounter Christ, when you really encounter Christ, he does not leave you where you are. He changes you. The apostles have been changed. These houses will be changed. We are to be changed. We're not just adding the adjective Christian onto our names and then going out and doing the same thing. He changes us all the way down to the very bottom. See, the gospel gets into us. This idea that Jesus died in our place gets into us. And not just our relationship with him, not just eternal destiny, but it gets down into all of us. It ultimately involves every aspect of our lives. And the disciples are starting to get this. They thought, oh, this is kind of a fun summer thing. I'm going to follow Jesus around. And now it's affecting their life. Now it's affecting what they do. And it's going to affect every aspect of their life to their deaths. One author got this, an 18th century preacher. He said, The gospel makes husbands better husbands, wives better wives, parents better parents, masters better masters, servants better servants. In a word, I would not give a single farthing for, for a man's religion whose cat and dog were not better for it. See, the gospel affects all of life. It affected the apostles. It affected the houses. 
And the response is still the same. If you think that the gospel is only for paid ministers like me to go out and share, you're missing the point. The gospel's for every single one of us. Whether we're paid or unpaid, whether we're full-time workers, part-time workers, whether we care for others, whether we work by ourselves, whether we work remotely, or we do the hardest job of all, stay home and not get paid and raise little ragamuffins, all of those jobs, every single one of them, is a part of our ministry. It's where we are to preach. And this will become more and more clear as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, so kind of a preview of coming attractions. Verse 14 If anyone will not receive you or listen, shake the dust from your feet, and when you leave that house or town. So the mirroring here is that Jesus was opposed. We are going to be opposed. This word receive means to welcome in. Preaching the word, the signs and wonders, show that the word is true. These empowered disciples who could do miracles were resisted. We can't do those miracles. We will be resisted. So we need to be ready for that. Just like with the Apostle Paul on, in Athens, some will say, I believe. Some will say, let's talk some more. And some will say, get away. So what is this shake the dust off thing? Well, when a Jewish person went to a Gentile city, as they left, they would shake the dust off of them, meaning they didn't want anything Gentile attached to them in any way. So when the disciples do this in a Jewish town, They're saying, you've rejected the Messiah. You are outside of true Israel. This gesture is meant to be offensive to the Jews, to say, I am treating you like a Gentile. And why are they doing this? Well, again, it ties, all of this ties back to Jesus. Verse uh, 37 of chapter 9, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus is saying, the harvest is too great to waste time with people who won't listen for this short-term mission trip. Because these Jews who have everything, they understand the covenant. They say, we are God's chosen people. And when their king walks in front of them and his emissaries come to them, they say, nope, don't want anything to do with that. They have said, we are not a part. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. We need to understand the increasing understanding of God's revelation means increasing responsibility. See, these Old Testament cities, all they had was two angels, which the word angel in the Bible is messenger. These two messengers from God that came to them, and they renounced those messengers. The Israelites here, they have the Son of God himself, God, the second person of the Trinity, in the flesh, coming to them, and they say, nah, I'm okay, I don't need that. Let me just keep my ways, my things that I've done before. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't get as much grace as these Israelites are getting. And so Jesus' point is that it is going to be worse for those who deny the Savior than those that just deny his witnesses. Think about the idea that God's covenant people rejecting him, the damnation, the the hell is going to be hotter for them. It's going to be worse because the unreceptivity to the gospel, according to Jesus right here, is a capital offense. It is the worst thing you can do. We like to say, oh, it's murder, it's rape, it's genocide. But honestly, Jesus is saying, if you reject me, that's the worst. That is the most horrible sin you can do. Because every time we tell somebody about Christ, there's a little mini judgment in progress. And what did it say earlier? That 
he will return like a thief in the night. Because ultimately, here's the thing. We are not guaranteed another breath. We're not guaranteed another day to get right with Christ. See, Jesus' compassion and his judgment are right here together. And our world hates that. They say, oh no, judgment is terrible. I just want Jesus that loves me. I just want Jesus that cares for me. But Jesus can't do that. Jesus can't take something that's true and cut it in half and take the parts we like. Instead, Jesus says, there is discomfort, there is judgment, but there's so much more. See, when we hear about the compassion and the judgment, we think that the judgment lessens the compassion. But that's actually the opposite of that. The judgment makes the compassion that much greater. Because when we see how abominable we are, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah's got nothing on us. And we see how bad they are, but yet grace was extended to them. That just makes grace even sweeter. It's not mediocre grace, how bland the sound. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. So the stricter the judgment, the more sweet the grace is. Remember what Luke chapter 12 says, for everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. There's an imperative here. This is not something where we can pull a scarlet O'Hare and say, I will think about this tomorrow. Instead, it's today. Hebrews 4, 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So this is the warning. There is judgment waiting if you are not in Christ. But that's not the whole story. The other side of the story is no matter what you have done past, what you are currently doing now, or what you will do in the future is gone if you're in Christ. There is real forgiveness. Our world has no place for forgiveness. Our world has no place for any of that. They want justice, justice, justice for everybody but me. Right here, this justice is taken and then God's love is poured out on us. So if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, Today is the day to repent, to confess your sins, to turn and feel the real love of God, not the cheap imitation our world throws out, but the real love of God. I'd encourage you on your connection card, write a note on there that you want to talk to me, grab me after the service, find somebody that's working, one of the worship people, anybody. Don't leave today without having that figured out. Now, for those of you that are here that know Christ, as your Lord and Savior. This passage does not give us license to just give up and say, oh yeah, someone else will take care of it. No, you are planted where you are for today, for this week, on purpose. There is not a person you're going to meet from the gas attendant to the person bagging your groceries to the person who is in front of you at Starbucks that is not there on purpose. Stop looking at them as inconvenient. Stop looking at them as just another person. Look at them as somebody who needs to know about this Savior. That is your assignment. We are to preach the gospel. But even more than that, you have people in your lives right now who don't know this. And these aren't strangers that you're going to bump into, but they're the people that you know really well. Maybe they're family. Maybe it's a neighbor Maybe it's some relative, maybe it's a friend, somebody that you see all the time. And you are worried that, guess what, if you tell them about Christ, they're not going to want to be your friend. Or you're going you're to lose a friendship. But i got to tell you, a thousand years from now, when we've been in glory, you're going to look back at that ridiculous, I'm going to lose a friend over telling them about how to be saved, and weep. 
Because ultimately, that momentary trial, that tribulation, is nothing compared to what they have in store for them if they don't hear the message. So preach the gospel. Do the good work. And right now, as we're going to begin moving towards communion, I pray that you would take a moment and pray, Lord, who do I need to share this with? This communion table is too small. We need a bigger communion table. We need to get all of our neighborhoods here understanding that this communion is for them. It doesn't have to be at our church. It could be at any Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. But we need to spread that gospel. And it doesn't come from us having a church and people drawn to us. It comes from us going out and preaching the gospel where we've been planted. So now as we bow our heads, I pray that you would ask the Lord to point to you who you should be talking to. And if you don't know the Lord, I pray that you ask him to be your Lord and Savior and submit to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, this is a hard message to hear. It's an, it's an intimidating message. Lord, we, uh, we don't want people to get mad at us. We don't want people to be disappointed with us, to be offended by us. But Lord, they need you so much. We all have people that are coming to mind right now that we are lifting up to you who need you. Lord, I pray that we would be like these disciples, that we would have had you pressed down into us, that the gospel would get so deep into us, Lord, that we couldn't help but share it. We couldn't help but expose those around us to it. Lord, help us to be those lights. Help us to be that salt. Lord, help us to share the good deeds of caring for people, but more importantly, caring for their spiritual well-being. So I pray that you would give us that kind of compassion and you would give us the, the desire to do it quickly, that we would not put it off, that if we hear from you today that we need to go, that we would go. Lord, we look forward to the uh, interactions you're going to give us, Lord. And Lord, now as we celebrate communion, this, this incredible mercy, this grace that you've bestowed on us in your son dying, living, and resurrecting for us. Thank you, Lord, for this grace. Help us to be grace givers as we go about our day this week. And Lord, I pray that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.